fun. Yeah. The book is called The Fight for Four Freedoms. Uh, no, what, no, sorry, sorry. It's The Fight for the Four Freedoms. Fight for the Four Freedoms. What made FDR and the Greatest Generation truly great? Um, a sort of uh, a, a history of, you know, uh, the New Deal, Franklin Roosevelt, and a sort of ensuing uh, effort to cement the New Deal in 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 practice, and um, a pretty good a pretty good book. I liked it a lot, and and um, you know we'll we'll definitely include a a link in the description. Um, I wanted to start us off here by you know I guess just logically at the beginning. Can you can you uh, lead us through you know what were the four freedoms? Where did they sort of come from, and what was uh, kind of Roosevelt's political, you know, orientation and objectives when he was promulgating this doctrine. Yeah, I, I promise you I will answer that, but I do want to say something as a, a preface to help people understand why. Sure. Um, I, I have the sense that Americans actually carry with them a kind of sense of a deep cultural memory or a sort of set of progressive instincts, if you don't mind my putting it that way. And, and I, I have believed that for quite some time now, Americans, whether they're black, white, brown, I don't, you know, I don't care what the racial or ethnic basis is, that most Americans have been fully aware, and I think it's evident today, but for, for decades now, Americans have been fully aware of the fact that the way things are is not only, is not, only not the way they have to be, perhaps, but they, they're not the way they should be, given the American promise. And and I have this feeling that when we think back, and I don't know how many of your of your of our listeners know anything about the '90s or the or for that matter the 2000s even, but it is the case that in the '90s there emerged and and into the 2000s two kind of strange cultural phenomena, and one was a kind of founding fathers fever or founding founder chic, and the other one was this an amazing amazing um, sort of almost obsessive kind of interest in the great, in what came to be called the greatest generation as dubbed by Tom Brokaw, who really missed the point, I think quite often in his work. And, and I thought it was revealed. Most people thought, Oh, P Americans are nostalgic and nostalgic is to dismiss what was going on. And I really thought that, that it was the case that Americans really were looking for an answer as to why they felt the way they did. And instinctively, and I mean this truly instinctively, they look to perhaps, you know, to these two revolutionary or at least progressive generations, those who were involved in the founding. And I don't mean the likes of Washington, Jefferson and so on. I mean, a generation of Americans, farmers and artisans and slaves alike in the case of the founding generation. And similarly, in the case of the 1930s, working people in all their diversity who literally confronted and and by way of some really astounding leadership from Roosevelt and the New Dealers, found out how to address, to confront, and in their own way, transcend um, the, the worst economic and social catastrophe in American history. Now, having said that, so when I write these kinds of books, whether it was the Thomas Paine book that I think we've talked about essentially last year, or for that matter, the FDR and democracy, or even more importantly, the work we're going to talk about now, I'm trying to enable Americans to understand why it is they feel the way they do. In other words, they feel that way because in many ways they're already endowed or imbued with certain kinds of progressive, not opinions, but progressive instincts. I like to think of the almost radical instincts. So 
The four freedoms, if you ask most Americans what the four freedoms are, they'd never be able to tell you. Or if they had a good sense of the, of the, of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, they might tell you, well, you know, the four freedoms of the, the four liberties of the First Amendment. The four freedoms, which were an astounding force in popular culture and, and uh, politics in the course of World War II and even ensuing times, even if people, again, could not name them, were um, were articulated by Franklin Roosevelt in 1941 in a speech, a State of the Union address of January 6, 41, in which he was sort of calling Americans to be prepared for the for the likely possibility that they would be in World War Two. OK, he had already in a, in a fireside chat called for turning the United States into the arsenal of democracy. Now he was going to give them a vision of what a world beyond the war might be like. So he, he talks about the possibility of creating a world characterized by four fundamental human freedoms. Freedom of speech and expression, freedom of worship, or if you prefer, freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, perhaps. And then is where he goes beyond the Bill of Rights, you might say, and he says freedom from want and freedom from fear. And those two latter freedoms were truly radical ideas for a president to offer Americans as a vision to be pursued after the war. And so the four freedoms were this, if you like, not simply a slogan. In fact, most Americans, even during the war, couldn't name specifically the four freedoms, but it somehow got became part of their mindset that this war was about more than just defending the United States. This was, was a, this was about going beyond the America of the 1920s, and or even for that matter, the America of the 1930s. Now, what empowered Roosevelt to do that is interesting. Americans themselves empowered him because when he thought about the first two terms of his presidency, from 33 to 41, he could look back and consider the degree to which not only had he and the New Dealers and the Democratic Congress enacted a whole series of bills into acts, programs and initiatives to truly transform American public life, the American landscape, but also bills turned into, bills turned into acts that empowered working people, whether it had to do with National Labor Relations Act, uh, the, agriculture, the earlier Agricultural Adjustment Act, uh, and in fact... For every, for every New Deal project that he proposed, meaning, you know, whether it was the uh, National Industrial Recovery Act, the Agricultural Adjustment Act, the, um, the Rural Electrification Agency, I mean, all of these things, all of them known as the alphabet soup of the New Deal, you know, NIRA, the AAA, the N, I mean, for all of those things, people, working people themselves created their own alphabet soup of agencies, agencies to enable their agency to go to work, their agency to confront the powers that be, especially the corporate powers that be, the conservative and reactionary powers that be. So you had, you know, you had the, if, if they didn't already exist, you had the, the expansion of the United Mine Workers, the United Auto Workers, uh, the, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, the National Youth uh, the NYA, the, not the NYA, the American Youth Congress, the AYC, four and a half million young people from everyone from 
members of the YWCA and the YMCA over to the young communists <laughs> and the young socialists. Four and a half million young people essentially affiliated to this American Youth Congress that really did demand opportunities for young people, work-study opportunities, all of which, by the way, did come into being during the New Deal. So, now, know, let me ask you, Harvey. Let me. Let yeah, me sorry, I'm going and, on too long. Please. No, no. This is this is a this is a great start, uh, and, and I want to say a number of things about that already because uh, there's some brilliance to tease out there because. It, uh, you know, and in a second, maybe you can speak to the fact that there are multiple drafts that that Roosevelt wrote before he realized this framing of the four freedoms, right? And so I want to hear about about how that clicked for him and and what went into into that uh, epiphany. But uh, this idea that there's this kind of almost union, collective, unconscious, politically of of progressive ideals that can be tapped, and that Roosevelt was savvy enough to see and engaged and and kind of desperate citizenry that could symbiotically be kind of uh, engaged with and activated. And then to have vision, which is, I mean, among the things we're missing from from what, if you can call people today leaders, uh, you have a few, I think, you know, Bernie, AOC, the squad, but but uh, vision, right, is, is one of the, the critical things. And, and you, you chart why it's so critical, and it situates the four freedoms so well, because vision actually activates somebody's narrative and situates them as part of a longer history and part of the imagined community that they're in now in the past and going forward. And so, you know, that along with a cool alliterative framing, because Americans adore alliteration, right? Uh, I, I love alliteration. I live <laughs> Who for doesn't? I don't trust people that don't love alliteration. Um, it, it, it's, it's a combination of, of, of vision, political savvy, and communication, along with tapping into the ideals and trying to fight for them. So, so maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, how those components went into the actual kind of uh, fructifying, if you will, of, of these four freedoms. See what I did there? Yeah, well, okay, I'll, I'll approach it from two angles. If you, a whole bunch of thoughts come into mind as you were speaking. By the way, that was a very articulate way of putting my entire life's projects. Okay? <laughs> it's, um, the, it's the Nicaraguan rum right here. Yeah. <laughs> well, so you may recall when we spoke of FDR and the book, the volume I edited, FDR and Democracy, a couple of months ago, that FDR actually first envisioned the idea of the four freedoms and even the Economic Bill of Rights back in 1932 in a campaign speech at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, where he spoke of creating or in many ways redeeming the ambitions and aspirations of the Declaration of Independence. And he called for an economic declaration of rights. So it is the case that truly, even before he's president, Roosevelt has in mind these kinds of things, okay, empowering people and enabling people. Well, during the course of, of the 30s, as he himself realizes, and many a time during the 30s, Roosevelt himself is actually pushed by working people as much as he is empowering them. It's a real, to use the Marxist concept or Hegelian, if you prefer, the dialectic between a president and working people. And probably the greatest example of democratic politics ever in American history. Okay, for all of the faults and failings, by the way, I mean, we know Roosevelt's sins, and I don't just mean that that he, you know, that he had an affair back in the 19-teens. I'm talking about everything from leaving the military as a segregated military, and and you know, interning Japanese American families during World War II, and it may not be a, really a sin of his so much as a sin of of Congress at the time, the failure basically to lift the refugee quotas 
and enable more Jewish refugees to come in the country. We know that stuff. But it is the case that Roosevelt is often pushed into action because he's invited the action. Now that, that's something to remember. So, but, and the other thing to remember is that la the labor movement itself, for many, many years, had advanced an argument known, in which they said, we're struggling for an American standard of living. And what they meant by that is a living that we would tend to think of as one afforded by a living wage, or at the least a family wage. So that stays at the heart of the labor movement. And Roosevelt is pretty much educated to that back in the, in the 20s by the, the, the women's socialist, often Jewish, East European immigrants, socialist organizers, labor organizers, that she brings back to Hyde Park when FDR is still convalescing from the, the polio he's suffering. So he knows about what the aspirations of labor are. And then in the 1930s, he is all the more educated by the likes of Sidney Hillman and other labor leaders. So that plays into his into his thinking as well. And we should also not forget, as long as we're in the midst of this pandemic, that Roosevelt himself was the victim of a pandemic. Yeah. He had polio. After the early 1920s, he could never walk on his own. He had braces that enabled him to stand and to simulate walking, but he could never really do it without one of his sons on his arm or someone he trusted on his arm. And his feeling was that, you know, there was he and there was a fire one time, by the way, at Hyde Park at the home. And his greatest fear was that he might literally be killed by his incapacities. So it's often said that his freedom from want question, the freedom from want question comes into his mind because he's educated by working people themselves as to what working people need. Keep in mind, most uh, our listeners that before the 1930s, there was no social security. There wasn't, there, the efforts to create a minimum wage were blocked by a reactionary at the, at the least conservative Supreme Court. Roosevelt was seeking to create, when he said freedom from want, even though he said it one way in the speech, Americans understood that what he was trying to do is keep people from destitution and hopefully of, at, in time from poverty, okay? And when he talked freedom from fear, he had in mind everything from we should not be subject to the war that would devastate us, but also we should not be subject in everyday life to fears that we could possibly address, fears of being injured in the workplace, okay, fears of being struck by a pandemic. I mean, you name it. I mean, some people have said to me, well, isn't that kind of idealistic to think freedom from want and fear? Well, bullshit. OK, I mean, it's not a black and white <laughs> kind of question. It's not like all fear or, or all the absence of fear. If there are things that we can change, then let us address it. OK, you, you remember that expression? It isn't that long ago. Not me, us. Yeah, that's right. Well, and what what he uh, the, the freedom from fear, I think, is is kind of interesting um, in the in the sort of current moment of, you know, sitting back looking at nearly 20 years of imperialist war as part of the kind of, you know, war on terrorism, you know, yeah. and he, he was, he was saying that, um, you know, uh, no, no, I mean, among the stipulations was basically what is the sort of opening lines of the UN charter, I think, which is to just say that like, we, we should do absolutely everything we can to prevent war, wars of aggression, uh, war of any kind. 
you know, the, the, uh, after it having, you know, devastated Europe twice in the lifetime of the people who are writing it. And, um, you know, you, you look at, um, you know, the, the legacy of the war on terror and, um, it's certainly much worse for like people in Afghanistan and Iraq who have been subject to sort of like imperial occupation and so on, but it hasn't been that hot for the United States either. You know, it's, 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 uh, you know, uh, it seems like Roosevelt was aiming to sort of like put the U S into a, a kind of diplomatic, uh, coalition of countries to say that like, you know, okay, we're, we're all going to be sort of jockeying for position here, but, um, we're not just not going to do wars anymore. You know, if we, if we could possibly help it, let's just stop with the violence as much as we possibly can. And it really seems like a shame that that was almost immediately thrown out the window by the, you know, Washington establishment. Yeah. It's interesting to consider back in 1920 when he was running for vice president on the democratic ticket, that that ticket endorsed and was pursuing the creation of the League of Nations as Wilson again. I mean, I don't want to say anything too nice about Woodrow Wilson. You know, he was a racist son of a bitch, uh, even if he was a professor and president of Princeton. But hell, I went to Rutgers. Princeton was probably the racist of the two. (laughs) We at least had Paul Robeson among our students. So anyhow, but having said that, the point is that they ran on a League of Nations ticket and they lost. And Roosevelt never forgot both the fact that Republicans tried to wrap themselves in the flag. He, he had no intention of ever letting them do that again when he was running against them. But the other thing was he really never gave up on the idea of the League of Nations. And when he pro- and in fact, one of the interesting thing is that when he proposes the, the four freedoms, they are stated as an international ideal. Americans heard them as an American set of ideals, but he actually laid them out very much in terms of the freedom from fear is let's end war. Let's set up an arrangement where there will be no war. And then one thing you would one of the striking things when I've done all this research, I mean, I've read all of FD, every single one of FDR speeches, you guys know, and people can't see it. And occasionally when we do these talks, you probably know that I've got the full every one of FDR's speeches lined up here on my on my shelves. The fact is that from the very beginning, FDR did not call the alliance that came to, to exist in World War II as the allies. He always called them the United Nations. He was already framing the idea that late in the war, they were going to create a United Nations. So in many ways, even though Truman is president when all of this takes place, and Eleanor Roosevelt plays a leading role in United Nations and the International Declar- the Declaration, International Declaration of Human Rights, it is the case that it's Roosevelt's vision, the the, uh, the idea of the United Nations, I think. And I, I look, again, I, I fully acknowledge Roosevelt's sins. I, I do not want to ignore them. But it remains the case that the vision that he afforded is one not unlike the case of Jefferson. The, what, for all of his faults and failings, and you want to pull down his statue, that's one thing. But the fact is the vision is, is valuable. What's really interesting about, you know, Lincoln and, and FDR – um, is that their leadership was not simply the pragmatic skill, and, and they were both very skilled orators and very savvy and, and had prudential wisdom, but 
you know, it, it ties into what you're saying, but not just the freedom from fear, but the freedom from wants is also universal because you can see how, okay, if we're going to end all wars, that has to be kind of something done internationally, uh, collectively, but you can still think that maybe these are things that are targeting like our interest as a nation in particular, but just like the declaration of independence and just like Lincoln, uh, giving a, a new birth to those ideals, these are statements that are universal. And, and the statement isn't just that Americans should be free from want. FDR is saying that everyone, right, around the globe should be spared from, from that fear. Yes, and should yep, have, right. So that's, I think that's incredibly important. That's the end of the preview, folks. If you want to hear the whole episode, you can go to patreon.com slash left anchor. Thanks for listening. <laughs>